something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Bad Manners. This is the podcast that takes you inside Britain's stately homes and tells all the tales the guidebooks don't. My name is Tom Horton, and I'll be your host. As a comedian, I'm not really bothered about the facts and figures. I just want the juicy stuff. So I'm on a mission to find out the frightening, filthy and downright jaw-dropping stories of these stately homes and the people in them. Today we are taking a visit to Blenheim Palace, a magnificent country house located in Oxfordshire, England. It was built as a gift for John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough from Queen Anne and the British nation in recognition of his victory at the Battle of Blenheim in 1704 during the War of Spanish Succession. The palace was designed by Sir John Vanbrugh and Nicholas Hawksmoor. And whilst it took over 20 years to complete, it's regarded as one of the finest examples of Baroque architecture in Britain. Over the centuries, Blenheim Palace has served as a family home for the Churchill family, a hospital during World War I, and a centre for training pilots during World War II. Today, it's a popular tourist destination, attracting visitors from all over the world to admire its stunning architecture, vast grounds and gardens, and rich history. Today's guest is historian and expert on all things stately homey. It's Dr. Amy Boyington. Good to see you, Amy. Thanks for having me. Can you just explain who you are? I'm an architectural historian, a historian. I love everything to do with history. Um, my day job is I'm a senior properties historian at English Heritage, which is a charity that owns over 400 historic buildings throughout England. And um, in my spare time, I do lots of TikToks about history and all that kind of thing. Firstly, as we always start, can we just paint a picture of what we're looking at? What are the grounds like? Let's set the scene. Blenheim is vast. It's one of the biggest country houses or stately homes in the country and it is a sprawling mansion. So if you're coming from Woodstock, which is the main sort of town village associated with the estate, you'll go through the village and then you come to this triumphal arch. And the triumphal arch is like a beautiful sort of monumental arch which you would have gone through in your horse and carriage and, you know, it's like announcing this is the entrance of this vast estate. Is this the start of a long driveway going up? Sort of, yeah. It, this one's kind of a sweeping drive, which you go Very along nice. and then you uh, you sort of arrive at one of the courtyards. So you see a lake to your right, a vast lake. There's a bridge going over that lake. And then you go down the road and then you sort of swoop into the front. And then 
Once you're sort of standing in front of the house, it's just, it's so big to take in all at once because you've got two courtyards on either side. So on the left, it would have been the old servants' quarters. On the right, it was the stable block. And then there in front of you, you've got this monumental entrance and you go up the steps and you go into the house. So it's, it's really amazing. It's really spectacular. And as you said, it's an excellent example of Baroque architecture. What does Baroque mean? Okay, so it's English Baroque. And basically, this was a very short-lived style that was popular in architecture in Britain. At the very beginning, sort of of the 18th century, so 1700s, which is when this was built. And it took its inspiration from Roman architecture, German architecture, French architecture. Very flamboyant classical styles. So if you look at it, there's loads of columns, statues. I was going to say, lots of columns and pillars. Yes, it's just so much to see. There's... Um, you know, gold bits and um, finials, and you look at the if you look at the roof line, it's dotted with statues and all of these amazing things, and it's meant to just take your breath away. This style came over to England and well, Britain in the begin sort of end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th century, but it was short-lived, and we've only got a few examples of this like pure Baroque architecture because it soon was superseded by a different type of classical style called Palladianism, which took its inspiration from a 16th century Venetian architect called Andrea Palladio and he liked the clean lines of ancient Rome ancient Rome and ancient Greece and basically people who liked Palladian architecture looked at the Baroque architecture and thought, ugh, that's been muddied it's not true authentic style so, yeah, it got, it right. got superseded. So just basically not enough straight lines, yeah. too, too hickledy-pickledy all over the place. Too just busy. Busy. Too busy with too many, you know, they're like, we don't need all these statues. All you need is a good solid column or a good <laughs> portico. And so, yeah. Keep it simple. Exactly, which is why Blenheim is so interesting, because it's like a snapshot of this interesting style that was very short-lived. Who was it who designed the place? So it was designed by an architect called Sir John Vanbrugh. And he actually, when he was commissioned by the Duke of Marlborough, he was not a trained architect, which is bizarre, right? He wasn't actually an architect. He was a, a dramatist. He liked to write plays. And so it was all very odd that he was chosen at all. So this was his first attempt? One of his first. He'd done a bit of dabbling before, but yeah, this was like, it was insane that he was chosen. Yeah, this is like trying to paint the Mona Lisa on your first right. art yes. class. It was insane. And so he had a sort of a second in command who was called Nicholas Hawksmore. And Nicholas Hawksmore was like the, you know, the guy who knew how to design and build buildings. So, right. So was he doing a lot of the heavy lifting in this of, design? Yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of the heavy lifting. And then Vanbrugh was sort of the artistic genius kind of vibe, you know, this is very, strutting around. Yeah, this is very... Um, Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs, yeah. yeah. No, you know, do you know what I mean? In Steve Jobs with Apple, he's just like, yeah. I want this to be invented, then all the yes, inventors do it. And he goes, no. that's mine. I did that. That's my idea. I'll get all the credit. Exactly. <laughs> okay. But he was seen as... Um, so he was the Steve Jobs of his time. Pretty much, yeah, but not quite as successful, sadly. Oh. Because he really, you know, he'd put all his eggs in the basket of Baroque architecture, which then fell out of favour pretty quick, so... It's a shame, because I think... Um, 
Baroque sounds cool. It I, is. I like it. it I is. like the idea. Well, it's the whole thing. You get Baroque art, you get Baroque um, sort of fashion. It's, it's a huge thing. And it's just amazing that in England it was there and then it wasn't there. And so you've got a couple of these amazing examples. Just the next century, all these artists going, do you remember that? That brief period where we all went absolutely insane yeah. and just started putting mad stuff on buildings. I know, and there's another house called Castle Howard, which is up in Yorkshire, which is another one of Vanbrugh's houses, and that's also Baroque. And that had a, a huge, it has a like a monumental dome, and it's super. It's another lavish house. In fact. If you've seen Bridgerton, it was yes. used as the Duke of Hastings' palatial country seat in the first season. Ah. So, yeah, it, that kind of vibe. Oh, I like Baroque. Okay. Mm. So, why was it built? Okay. So, first of all, before we talk about that, we need to talk about who the Duke of Marlborough was because it was commissioned by a man called John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough. And he was a soldier. And he basically, he he married this girl, girl, it's funny to call her a girl because she became so impressive. She was called Sarah Jennings. Right. And they were both courtiers at the courts of William and Mary. So do you know William, the Dutch William of Orange, who came over with the Glorious Revolution in 1688. He married Mary II and they didn't have any children. And so the throne then went to Mary's sister, Anne, which is very important later on. So um, they were both courtiers. They were sort of on the make. They were determined to, you know, really rise up through the ranks because neither of them were titled. Mm -hmm. They came from gentry families and they secretly married. And it's probably thought that neither of them were making a really a good match because at this time it's, you, you should sort of marry upwards. You know, if they're ambitious families, don't marry your own level or below. Vertical, not horizontal. Yeah, exactly. And so nobody could have imagined at this time that this couple would become one of the most powerful couples in the kingdom. Wow. Because he must have had his, his pick because... Yeah. As I've, I'm reading here, he was described as, as handsome as yeah, an angel. he was. Yes, exactly. A dashing military man. Right. And um, this is really interesting. He was he's supposedly a mistress of Barbara Villiers. Do you know who she was? Uh, no. She was amazing. So she was the one of the, the, the premier mistress of Charles II. So his main mistress was Barbara Villiers, which is therefore really interesting that Barbara took on this young, handsome John Churchill as one of her lovers. So yeah. that's pretty impressive. So you, he, you've got, a, got it about as good as you possibly right, can with yeah. this cool king who's awesome. And then you go, no, but this this angel-looking dude swans into court. Yeah, I might have a bit of that. Yeah, have a bit of him as well. <laughs> so that's what happened. And then the way it went was that Sarah and John, they married and then slowly but surely they rose up through the ranks because he was doing well militarily and she was at home at the English court and she made friends with Princess Anne. So this was the sister of Queen Mary. So Sarah and Anne almost had, like sometimes people have said that they had a lesbian relationship because they have lots of these really very loving letters to one another. But it's also been said that that's probably the style of writing at the time female friendship it was very much you know very affectionate and very or sort of over the top in our eyes today mm -hmm. um, but no matter what they formed a long lasting friendship which proved very advantageous to the Churchills in later life because when Anne became queen who was her right hand woman her best friend Sarah Churchill uh, of course and <laughs> sorry suddenly Sarah Churchill just sounds like it just sounds like school <laughs> yeah. Have you heard what Sarah Churchill's been doing? Except Queen Bee. She queen was Bee. Queen Bee, but there was an actual queen, so it's a bit difficult, you see. 
It's tough. Mm. There can be only one. And so... Like bees. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah. so Anne is now queen, and so she makes her best friend mistress of the robes, which basically means that she gets... She, it's a paid salary. It's a high position within the court. So she's a paid courtier. She gets all of these, basically the top jobs at the royal court. And she also gives John Churchill, who is Sarah's husband, a dukedom. So they become duke and duchess. So that's the highest you can get. Highest of the lords. Highest of the lords. Yes. So mm-hmm. they are very important at this point in time. Very, very, yeah, okay. We're at the beginning of the 18th century, the first 1700s. And the duke is commanding um, a huge army over on the continent because we have the Spanish War of Succession going on. And this is very important to our story. But okay. do you know what that is? I do not. Okay. Let's go into that very briefly. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So basically, in Europe at this time, the beginning of the 1700s, Britain is a sort of emerging willpower. We have Spain, which was the dominating willpower. It's got its sort of tentacles everywhere all across the world. We also have France, of course. We've got Louis XIV. He's nearly dying, but he's got a big, you know, big country. He's very powerful. And then we've got the Holy Roman Empire, which is bits of Germany, bits of Italy. It's all a bit complicated. Okay. Um, And they're the four powerhouses currently in Europe. Also the Netherlands is sort of dashing around. The Netherlands? Well, Didn't kind, see them coming. Kind of, because it was a bigger thing. It was like with Flanders, Belgium, it was such a, of a larger sort of thing that it is now. But part of it was dominated, it was owned and dominated by Spain, which we, we call it the Spanish Netherlands. Anyway. Right. 
1700, a man dies. He's called Charles II, or Carlos Dos, I guess, because he's, he's a Spanish king. He was... Uh, uh, Carlos Dos. I guess. I mean, what would you... <laughs> the second? No, Carlos Dos sounds great. <laughs> so, he dies. He dies, but he, uh, we had to talk about him because he was nicknamed the Bewitched. And he was called the Bewitched because, unfortunately, his father and mother were uncle and niece. So as a result of inbreeding and successive generations of inbreeding, he was born not the healthiest of babies. Like he had a big, massive jaw, and we call it the Habsburg jaw when it's sort of protruding. Oh, I've seen pictures of him. Yeah. His chin follows you around the room. Oh, poor guy. I I feel so bad for him. But anyway, he had loads of like physical deformities and supposedly mental deformities, which is really tragic. But still, he was married a couple of times, I think perhaps to his cousin, perhaps to his Will they not learn? Who knows, (laughs) right? But anyway, no children survived. It's not that shocking, is it? Um, No. Or when the family tree is a circle. But anyway, that basically <laughs> happened. And so the there was no heir for the throne, the Spanish throne of the, Haps- the Habsburg family. And so this is why we've got the Spanish War of Succession. Who's going to succeed that throne? Right, I see. So a war begins. And John Churchill becomes the leader of the Allied forces, so the British, the, the Dutch. The trio. The trio. Yes, the duo. And so he does really well on the continent. He's a really good general. He's pretty young at the time. Uh, I can't remember how young, but... I was going to say, what does pretty young mean in these times? He must have been... He's like his... nine. <laughs> he must have been... Like, he was pretty unseasoned for such a huge battles and he was put in charge of it and there were way more seasoned Dutch generals who were like oh who's this young guy as in he must have been 30s or you know that kind of age he hadn't right, okay. he hadn't been managing large armies let alone on this scale it's a whole European conflict and so he did actually do well though. so we're giving you a promotion it's a lot more than you're used to <laughs> but we really back you it's three countries <laughs> yeah I know oh, okay I know it's insane 1704 Battle of Blenheim, which is a huge battle as part of the Spanish War of Succession, and he manages to win. And so a grateful Britain and a grateful Queen is like, right, we need to reward this general. We need to give him something. So there's sort of discussions, oh, maybe we can build a huge statue in his honour and put it in London. And then people are like, oh, maybe we could build a like a, a palace in his honour. And so that got, gets traction. And the Duke's like, mm, yeah, I, I, I want a palace. Yeah, yeah well, Let's yeah. go with that option. Better than a statue. <laughs> exactly. I'd much rather have that. Yeah. So um, the government actually gives a large sum of money for the building of Blenheim. So they basically, Woodstock Estate is given to him and the Duchess. And then they said, here's a lump sum of money. You can build a big palace on there. Wow. So, you know, pretty and impressive. And then that big load of money, Baroque's really in. Yep. Smash them together. Exactly. You get Lenin Palace. If only it were that simple, though, because... Duchess. Remember, we haven't really talked about her for a minute. Yes. So, Sarah Churchill. I don't know if you've seen The Favourite. I have seen The Favourite. Great okay, film. with um, Rachel Weiss and Olivia uh, Coleman. Olivia Coleman. As well. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, Rachel plays Sarah Churchill and Olivia Coleman plays the Queen, Queen Anne. Yes, yes. So, that, that, that gives you a little bit of an indication about what Sarah's like, but obviously that's a drama and it's been exaggerated and it's nuts. But you get the idea. They were close friends, but then it went very stormy and it went downhill. In what way did it go downhill? Okay. So Sarah 
was ambitious. She was top of the bill. You know, she'd got, she was a duchess. She was also very, very, very sort of used to controlling the queen. So when Queen Anne was a princess, she was pretty insecure and she relied heavily on her friends. And she's quite ill, isn't she? Uh, yeah, she has bouts of illnesses, yeah, for sure. And also, oh, poor Anne, she has, I think it's 18 pregnancies or something like that, and only one survives. She has a very, very troubled time and she relies on Sarah very heavily for emotional support. And Sarah isn't necessarily as invested the other way, but she can see how it's an advantage to have a queen as a bestie. So... Absolutely. <laughs> so she gets all these perks, but then Sarah is just so... She's clever, she's ambitious, and she really knows what she wants, and she wants to control politics. And Sarah tried to force her sort of political views on the Queen, and it just went badly. And she just never got the hint that enough is enough, just back off, you're not going to win this battle. Mm. And so they had an almighty falling out, and they were actually never friends again after a point. She was stripped of her title as Mistress of the Robes and that kind of thing. So all of these sort of accolades she'd been given when Anne became Queen were later taken away from her. Some of them were given to her relative, Abigail Marsham, or Masham, who was like her rival at court. And we see that a little bit in The Favourite. Mm -hmm. But before this happened, so at the beginning, so 1704 is the battle, then 1705, we have the initial building of the house. So this is when things are still okay between everybody. They haven't completely deteriorated. So the Queen has promised money, and that is given. But the Queen also hints that she will keep giving money until it's completed. But that doesn't actually happen. And because, you know, it's one of the largest houses ever built. And as a result, it cost a fortune and money ran out and tensions ran high. Don't you just hate it when queens stop funding the construction of your ginormous house? And simply because you tried to manipulate her and bend her to your political will. Bloody queens, eh? What are they like? As a result of Queen Anne and Sarah Churchill's falling out, Blenheim Palace took decades to finish. By the time the Duke came back from the wars, all he wanted to do, like all of us after a war, was put his feet up and relax in his great big bloody mansion. But unfortunately, um, House was not finished and his wife, Sarah, was trying her hardest to get it done, like hounding everybody, like, come on, come on, let's go, go, go. She's trying to find money from everywhere, trying to source furniture, trying to get it done for her husband. Ah, And then he has a couple of strokes really bad strokes in about 1716 in which he basically you know people think oh god is he going to die and he doesn't die but he basically can no longer manage the project and so it all goes to Sarah Churchill his wife and she's now like the you know manager of it all but she hates the architects it's really tricky yeah and so Vanbrugh actually in a sensational letter he just quits he resigns when the house isn't finished he just goes done leaving he he, his whole project that he spent so long on and his finals goes he just says he cannot deal sod it i'm done (laughs) can't deal (laughs) i know he couldn't deal with sarah churchill and that's only because she held him accountable constantly like how much is this costing blah 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 and so they basically he, he went off and she banned him from going back onto the site forever to which he probably went yeah. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> oh God, she was probably happy that he wasn't coming back. Yeah, yeah. I it, think that's a. That's they a... hated each other. Yeah. 
So then Sarah Chitchell's like, okay, I really want to get this done for my husband. I'm going to take it on. I'm going to just finish it, but I'm going to get Nicholas Hawksmore back. So remember Nicholas Hawksmore was the, him. the number two. Yeah. Um, and he, the one who actually knew how yes, to do it. exactly. And so this was great because with him, she he, he listened to her. He did everything properly. And so it was a much better working relationship and they actually made good progress. So they got the family wing where the Duke could move into done. So the Duke could finally... Yeah, the living quarters. So just yes. like, there you go, mate, you can rest. Exactly. You can take your slippers, yeah. smoke your pipe, just chill by the fire. Yeah. And so he did. You know, he at least had that uh, as his retirement. Oh, that's nice. It is, it is. And then he died in 1722 and still wasn't quite finished. So, <laughs> I mean, the you know, these, the library wasn't yet done. Like, there's so many bits and pieces that were remained unfinished because it's a humongous house. It's going to take time. It's huge. So Sarah then makes it her, you know, sort of, she throws all of her energy into just getting it done. And she does. She does it. She does complete it. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, 
and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blenheim Palace was finally completed in the mid-1720s. One of the last things Sarah Churchill commissioned was a beautiful tomb for her husband that sits in Blenheim Chapel, right next door. I mean, I would have put a snooker room in, but each to their own. We could wrap the episode up there, but the code to this story is just as fascinating. If you've ever seen Grand Designs, you'll know the score. Wealthy couple have ambitious project, ambitious project goes over budget. Kevin MacLeod visits wealthy couple on a rainy day and says, so do you think you'll get this finished by the time you have your baby? They say definitely. Three years later, still no roof. The difference with our story is Grand Designs always ends with Kevin MacLeod and the wealthy couple having a cup of tea in their ultra-modern kitchen while the baby coos away in their high chair. What you don't see is what happens after the credits roll. How the couple struggle to maintain their enormous barn conversion. Sure, you've got solar panels on the roof, paying off the massive debt you got into because you wanted underfloor heating and the nice blinds. Needless to say, Blenheim Palace, like all old houses, was a money pit. Time ticked on, the 18th century turned into the 19th century, and the house passed to various Churchills, none of whom had the money to maintain it. So what started happening to the house when the money started running out? So when we get to the 19th century, the 8th Duke of Marlborough, he started basically selling stuff. So he got an Act of Parliament which allowed him to sell the heirlooms from the house. And so that's why he started selling some of the great collecting. Like they collected paintings throughout their sort of time and then he came along and was like, sell that, sell that, sell that, sell some land, get some money, because they were in so much debt. Wow. And yeah, lots of paintings. You're saying Van Dyke and how much were these, these selling for a lot? Yes, back then, like tens of thousands. Today it would have been millions. So yeah. This, okay. So he was like, let's liquidate the assets, basically, which was bad because they were meant to be entailed on the estate, which means the art collection and the house were never meant to be separated. And so he managed to get it separated legally so that he could then strip the house. Not completely bare, but he sold a lot of the best pieces. Yeah, they just of got one chair in a massive. <laughs> <laughs> Tragic, but it happened a lot. Yeah. And this eighth duke was known as a devilish spendthrift rake without a single moral scruple. Hang on, sorry, just changing my Tinder bio. Without a single moral scruple. Okay, where were we? Ah, yes, the eighth duke of Marlborough. To claw back some much-needed money, the eighth duke, or wicked duke as he was known sold as much of the house's contents as he could, including the palace artworks. And this is Blenheim Palace, so we're not talking uninspiring, standard-issue, IKEA, live-laugh-love bullshit. This is the real deal. He sold ten Van Dykes. That's a lot of Van Dykes. And Rubens and Raphael, Rembrandt. Oh, my goodness. Like, these are the creme de la creme of, like, art collecting at that time. Like, these were... High-hitting pieces, and he sold loads of them. Yeah. It's saying here that this naughty duke was found dead in his laboratory at Blenheim at the age of 48. Well, the fact that Blenheim has a laboratory... Yeah, or maybe it did. Who knows what he was doing there? there any, they must have every single type of room. Yeah. They oh, could. they did. So many rooms, yeah. Right. Jacuzzi. Oh, yes, um, if only. Ball pit. 
<laughs> Some slides <laughs> Some going slides. on. There's a flume <laughs> at the back. You Do we need seven flumes? Yes, that would be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> but his housekeeper said that he had a terrible expression on his face. Yeah. How well, I'm surprised he's dead. Pretty young, 48. And then his son inherited the ninth duke. And the ninth duke, he was like the opposite to his father in a way because he was like, he really wanted to restore the family fortunes and bring Blenheim back to its former glory. Mm-hmm. And so he married an American heiress, like Consuelo Vanderbilt, who was, she was from one of the great families in New York. And she was so rich. And he was like, great, American money. Yeah, good. Bring it, bring, bring it bring to Blenheim. It we can use this to restore the family fortunes and bring Blenheim back. And that is exactly what happened. That's what happened. Yeah. Brilliant. She didn't want to marry him. And her her mother, I think, I can't remember her name, but her mother locked her in her room and wouldn't let her out until she accepted that she has to marry this duke. Because her mum really wanted her daughter to be a duchess because that's really good kudos, you know, over in America. So Locked her in her room. Yeah. She was was a ball breaker, basically. You're grounded until you you marry this person. Exactly. And apparently when they married, so this is the ninth duke and consort, and the Duke said to um, Consuelo, I'm never going back to America. Like, I hate it. And also, he, he basically said, I don't love you. I'm marrying you for your money, just so you know. And so... But she went, well, I don't love you either. I'm marrying you because my mother told <laughs> oh, me to. Oh, it's just such a bad beginning, isn't it? It's not what I would call a, um, you know, a, a relationship based on... It's not very romantic, is gen- it? No, it's not very romantic <laughs> at all. I, I'd like to hear their love letters. Oh, God. So, yeah, they moved Can to... I have a tenor? <laughs> So sad. But anyway, yeah, they did restore the house. Um, well, that is the, the silver lining of this yeah. awful marriage, is that the house prevails. That's good, at least. Good. Happy days. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a rich history of people of Blenheim flushing their cash down the toilet, mm. which brings me on nicely to the golden toilet of Blenheim. <laughs> Yes. See what I did there? So, yes, very clever. So, yeah, the Blenheim Palace is currently owned by the 12th Duke of Marlborough. And yeah. in 2019, there was an exhibition where there was a, a pure golden toilet on display as part of an, like an art exhibition. Yes. And um, it got stolen. It got stolen? Actually got stolen, like a heist. You know, just imagine like those grand heists. It got it got stolen. A and toilet heist. I don't think, yeah, an eighteen carat toilet, which was actually fully working. It was flushable; you could use it. And made fully like even the U bend and pipes are all yeah, eighteen carat. Yeah, it, it was gold. Yeah, nuts, cool. right? Something Trump would like. You're doing that and then just putting toilet duck around the rim just seems <laughs> wrong, doesn't it? God, that, that is a oh. oh, and it was worth um, about four point eight million pounds. How so, would you nick a golden toilet? Firstly. Uh, so heavy, heavy. Right? Yeah, right. And nobody saw it. Like, what was going on with security? This is the four point eight million pound toilet. Yeah, someone's got to be guarding that. And how are they going to grab it? I don't know. Like, that's heavy, heavy, heavy. You can't just lift it. This happened in two thousand nineteen. Yeah, and they haven't. It hasn't. They haven't arrested lots of people, but no one's been actually charged with it. So someone somewhere in their outhouse. Yeah. Because you couldn't keep it in your front house. No. It'd just be. Just, just yours in your garden shed. No one else knows, but occasionally, just once a year, you go out. And polish it. And just put... <laughs> well, maybe, <laughs> use it. But I was going to say use oh, it. Okay. I thought, I thought Special. Po- to be honest, I thought polish it was slang for using it. I thought, I, I didn't, I thought Amy, that's, that's, a, that's a hell of a hell of a verb to Sad. use for that, but... Sadly not, no. That's my yearly golden 
polished. <laughs> I know, what a mystery. But I presume it's been melted down and it's long gone now. Amy, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Blenheim. Mm-hmm. What is your favourite historical scandal? Oh, actually, this is really interesting. So it, linking it back to Blenheim. Nice. So I can't remember, in the 18th century, um, one of the dukes, so there was a later duke, um, one of his daughters was called Diana. And Diana married um, twice. She had one marriage first and he was a philanderer. So he was like always sleeping around. She then basically left him, said, I'm not dealing with this anymore. And sure. um, she then had got a divorce and that was a, a scandal in the time because it was all very public. It was written about in the papers about who gets what, that kind of thing. She then, the very next day after the divorce is done, she marries another guy. She had a lover called Beauclerc. So she marries this guy Beauclerc and she has children from both of these marriages, right? Mm -hmm. That guy then dies. And then later on in life, she finds out that her son from her first marriage is sleeping with the daughter from the second marriage and they have children. Oh, wow. And that is a massive scandal. Lovely. A little bit of semi-incest to end the pod. (laughs) As, as we all, as we like. Oh my God. Amy, absolute <laughs> pleasure. Just tell the listeners again where they can find you. I'm Amy Boynton. I'm History with Amy on TikTok. That's it for this episode. If you'll excuse me, it's time for my yearly golden polish. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, Sally Van Dykes, don't die in your lab and mind your manners. Thanks for listening to Bad Manners. If you like the pod, please share it with your friends. Rate it on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review and make sure you spill the tea on any of your favourite bad manners that we could feature in future episodes. This podcast was produced by Atomized Studios for iHeartRadio. It was hosted by me, Tom Horton. It was produced by Willa Malensky, Rebecca Rappaport and Chris Attaway. It was executive produced by Faye Stewart and Zad Rogers. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore and our production coordinator is Bella Salini. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.